Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, I'm Q. Hi, Hi, I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Jamie Byrne. Hi, I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Dave Demmer. And Mama, can you hear me? It's Dr. Tom Dixon here, GP in Melbourne. And we have an extra special guest today. Uh, I'm Dr. Nate Reed, and I'm a GP. Awesome. And Hello. welcome along to the Meet Q podcast, where each episode we meet Q, a fictional member of the LGBTQIAP plus community who's struggling with their mental health, while the three of us, four of us today, are going to have a chat about what's going on for Q and how we're going to support them in therapy and medically. Thanks for joining us. Woo. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And we extend that respect to any First Nation listeners today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome along, everyone, and welcome, Nate. Welcome, Nate. Thanks for having me. Three becomes four. (laughs) (laughs) Room's getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, I know. No longer a menage a trois. No. No, What's a quattro, I think? Isn't that a type of pizza? Like a four cheese pizza? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's Italian, though, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe maybe we're just crossing all of Europe. Now, like, yes, international and food. So, Nate, do you want to introduce yourself a bit more to our listeners? Yeah, so I'm a GP. I've been working in LGBTIQ spaces, uh, since I've sort of been starting as a GP, really, since 2014, um, I have a large cohort of gender diverse patients and I have been sort of practicing in an informed consent model of care since 2017. Yeah, I think you were one of the first, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, we were all showing our age. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, and we so, don't look it. No, yeah. we definitely, no one in this room looks it. And no one can verify we that. back to age again because I felt really triggered last time. Am I still the oldest person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. We're not going to ask Nate how old he is. <laughs> that would be rude. <laughs> yeah. It's so wonderful to have you here. And um, we're really focusing today on um, a gender diverse case as well. And it's really wonderful to have more people who work in this space and mm. have really good representation. So, should we go ahead and meet Q? Let's do it. Hi, I'm Q. I'm a 15-year-old trans girl. I realised I was trans about a year ago when I started following some people on Instagram and really connected with their experiences they were describing. I've told a couple of friends who have been using my chosen name, which is good, but I worry that even if I came out, people are never going to believe I'm a girl. I'm anxious all the time. When people gender me as a guy, I feel crushed. But when my friends who know use my chosen name and she, her pronouns, I feel panicked. Maybe I should try they, them first. Maybe that won't be as scary. I really want to start on hormones, but I'd have to come out as trans at home. I think my mum knows something is going on. She's pretty switched on. I'm worried about dad though. He's always concerned about what people think, and I have no idea how he'll react. Guys, what do we think about Q? Well, I think it's quite an interesting kind of space to start with in the sense of Q's wondering about like their gender and their identifying as a trans woman which is great and I think the first thing we would do clinically would be that notion of kind of just validating who they are mm-hmm. um, like it's I guess no longer their chosen name it's their name yeah. um, their pronouns are their pronouns mm-hmm. like that's yeah. usually how I kind of start with these um, patients who see me or yeah. just friends as well 
And, and I mean, I would also sort of add to that, that kind of like, and it's okay that this is, that you're still not sure of this and that there's, there's, yeah. that yep. that's really common. And I think because a lot of the times people think that they have to sure. present in a certain way so that they can get the treatment that they want or the mm. treatment they feel like they need, but yeah. it's okay to actually just be completely honest and be completely yeah. confused and overwhelmed by it because it's actually a really, really big thing. Huge, isn't it? And it's that thing of going, I, I see so many clients that are just like, it'd just be easier if I looked like a woman, so let's just go. And it's it's that kind of panic between really wanting to be seen and identified, you know, as their affirmed gender, but then at the same mm-hmm. time this feeling that they're an imposter at the mm. same time. And I feel like that's such a, a beyond gender feeling that anyone can empathise with and it's just so pervasive and so Big in the context of gender and also as a 15-year-old, like, you know, we, we're all older than 15 in this room. We've yes. all been a 15-year-old and it's so tough. Like, it's mm-hmm. like such a tough age. Well, there's kind of two uh, kind of psychological aspects of development happening here, isn't there? Like one around gender development and one around identity development in general. And these two things kind of coming together in this moment to kind of probably confuse Q a little bit as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Like that angsty teen is usually angst because they were kind of trying to figure out who the F we are. Exactly. And like if you throw on like sexuality or gender on top of it, it can be an incredibly difficult time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's difficult anyway. I think like let's start with fact one. It is difficult. And here we've got, you know, um, someone that you're just like, am I going to be seen for me? I think is is mm. what we've got here, and I don't know. My heart's uh, kind of reaching out here. Yeah, yeah, there's almost this kind of "who is me" question that that Q's still mm. kind of asking at this point. Like, I feel like Q is is identifying and, and affirming, but kind of questioning how she does that in the context mm. of adolescence in general. So, Dave, like, I know that um, you wrote your thesis on gender um, development. I did. Yes, and spent many years uh, in this space. Oh, you don't look a day over, like many years. I just wanted to, like, psychologically, like, mm-hmm. where does, like, gender come from? Sure. Wow. Well, I guess the, um, the scientific understanding of it is this kind of social construct and, and kind of individual understanding of who we are in terms of the gender spectrum and also kind of that's always within the social construct. So, as- can I just stop there for a sec? But you said gender spectrum. What's that? Gender spectrum is more than kind of the traditional binary of what maybe we've historically thought gender is. Male, female. We now think of it more as a kind of fluid continuum of anywhere kind of within those spaces and, and beyond those spaces as well. And does gender expression, I suppose, kind of differ at all? Like the rest of the group can speak on this as well, like yeah. between identity? Absolutely. So mm. gender identity is the gender that I identify mm. as. Mm. And then gender expression is how I express my gender. Sure. So, you know. So I'm a bit of a tomboy. So I identify as a cis female. Mm-hmm. I was a stream female at birth and I identify as a female. Although, like, I also do dumb stuff like try to mark footballs and I play golf and, I wouldn't you say know. dumb stuff. I would, I would describe <laughs> that maybe what you're, what you're picking up there, Jamie, is more mas- typically masculine right, stuff. Right, you know, yeah. like, I like sport. I like going to the footy. Mm-hmm. I like, you know, hanging out with lads, you know, like all of that kind of stuff that um, I think a lot of the time are seen as less feminine qualities. And then when, I, like, I am sort of the kind of opposite in terms of the sign female at birth, 
tra- transitioned, identifies male, very strong identity as male, but then also like wear nail polish and wear yeah. earrings and like mm. to sort of sometimes just mix it up with the sort of feminine space as well. Yeah, yeah I'm with you there, Nate, in the sense I, I signed male at birth and identify as a cis male, but I'm currently wearing like vintage um, 90s Comme de Garçon, like wraparound skirt um, and collots uh, with earrings. See a photo of Tom in our show notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's very much that like my kind of view with this, that it's not part of my identity, mm. but it's how I kind of express myself. Mm. And I am very much the middle finger to masculinity or toxic masculinity in the sense that um, I think it can be too much restrictive. Tom, I really like how you clarified there that you said toxic masculinity, because I think unfortunately sometimes masculinity can get a bad rap when actually there's really wonderful positive parts of masculinity. Yeah. So I guess that's what we're thinking about when uh, we talk about this term gender dysphoria, which is this space between your assumed or assigned gender at birth and the um, gender that you identify with and the distress in between, mm. the, um, the gap between, you know, how you're feeling in your body, yeah, um, versus what you know to be true about who you are in mm-hmm. terms of your gender. Okay, so we've got this idea of gender dysphoria, but Tom, I know that you've spoken to me about gender euphoria before. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so I suppose like to even step it back a um, point, it would be the notion that like gender doesn't need to be pathologized, mm. um, and it's something that happens, I suppose, because just like sexuality was in the DSM um, back in the day, and wasn't until 1973 that homosexuality came out of it. Um, that uh, kind of gender still remains in it, unfortunately. And it's one where the kind of medical term for that notion of kind of that gap between and the discomfort that someone might feel if their gender identity doesn't match the way they're able to express themselves, as you were saying, Jamie, um, is called gender dysphoria. And I suppose not every trans or not um, gender diverse patient is going to have that dysphoria because they are going to be able to kind of express themselves um, as they wish. And that can be, and not every kind of trans person is going to express themselves in the stereotypically kind of um, counter to their kind of assigned um, gender or sex at birth. Um, And it's very much that individual perspective that's how they want to express themselves is how they want to express themselves. And I think it also like moves quite a lot, like so yeah. over over life. So there might be periods of time where people are feeling mm-hmm. dysphoric, or people are feeling more in the kind of euphoric space, or not even thinking about their gender. They're focusing on all of the other things, like you know, there was a pandemic. I don't oh know, yeah, did you guys know? Yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. 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 So you know, so that kind of idea that it it, it is actually it's not a fix. So you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be. You know, you don't have to be gender dysphoric to be trans and to, mm-hmm. to for people to accept your gender identity is what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we, we'd hope that we'd be supporting our, our gender diverse clients to get to a point where they don't, where they're not. Um, yeah. feeling that dysphoria anymore. Well, yeah, they may That's never experience a dysphoria. Like it may just be like this notion that it's the kind of closest medical um, pathology that we can put, uh, kind of give someone, unfortunately, because it then allows us to kind of, under the technical nature of medicine, um, provide them therapy and treatment. Um, and it's not necessarily one where like all my gender diverse patients are going to experience dysphoria at all. So, I think something really important here. Uh, that we would want to consider as professionals is is the developmental period that 
IQ is in. Uh, I was kind of saying before that these two worlds kind of come together and I'm seeing this for Q1 being this kind of period of individuation as as a teenager, which is something that we would hope that most teenagers go through. As angst. A, as a, sometimes angst, not always angst. What teenagers hasn't been angsty? Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Most, yeah. most teenagers, yeah. I went through like a real like uh, nickelback angsty. Oh, like, evanescence? I was like, oh, evanescence. Oh, my God. So many feelings. Okay, we are all the same age. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dave. What you you Tom's was, a couple of years ago. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I was saying these two words coming together of, you know, Q here just in their general identity, um, separation from family, more involvement with peers, developing into kind of really a young adult pretty soon. Uh coming together with this space of like also just having gone through puberty, which is a period when, you know, for, for people who are gender diverse, it could, there can be a real increase in distress as secondary sex characteristics start to develop. So, you know, for, you know, assigned female at birth, you know, periods, breast development, assigned male at birth, you know, erections, things like that, more common, more often. Um, and these two kind of things coming to, together to really increase distress. So struggling to form a general identity and then also having to kind of question what's going on with their gender yeah, identity. this idea of the body betraying you. Well, it's a kind of like the notion of gender, kind of we know that like young kids um, will start to develop at like kind of about three or four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of kind of unfortunate like kind of debate in um, the popular culture surrounding like this influence and I think that's kind of what um, Q's wondering with the notion of like Instagram and like kind of having that representation here is that like it's kind of it's just because it's popular which is such a kind of undermining of Q's validity to kind of just actually say that this is my gender. Yeah. Um, like most cis people have never had their gender questioned at all. Mm-hmm. And so like kind of how, why should we be questioning Q just because they've maybe seen more representation on Instagram? And when I work with parents and, uh, you know, I work with a lot of people who's Q's age, then I'll often just put the question to the parents and say, you know, um, I'm going to make an assumption, mum, dad, that, you know, you guys are cisgender, that you've never questioned your gender identity. Maybe you have. But have you ever had to prove that you're a female or that you're a male and be like 100% sure? I've never been asked to do that. And, you know, again, I use myself as an example. And that often makes people like stop and go like, oh, yeah. No one's ever asked me to be like 100% sure that I'm a female or a male because, again, that gap between the mind and body hasn't caused them um, distress or, you know, they've been able to present in a gender that is consistent with who they are. Can we have a little educational moment? And talk sure. about pronouns. My mother's a school teacher. So. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone want to do the claps? <laughs> like, get the attention. What are our, what are our perspectives on, on our understandings on pronouns and changes to pronouns and all the different types of pronouns? Sometimes I feel like I can't, I can't uh, keep up. I'm having to constantly educate myself here. Well, I suppose the classics um, are kind of he, they and she. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are kind of many other pronouns that people kind of will use um, that are non-traditional kind of traditional as well. Mm-hmm. So I think probably of those, most people are aware of, of he and she um, and the they space. Tom, how would you describe that? The they space, I suppose, I like it's something... I almost get in trouble sometimes for using they for everyone. Yeah. Um, because in well. my mind, it's a very non-gendered um, word and uh, it can kind of 
express like kind of cover everyone and so it's, 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 my, it's my careful late, though it's, working with binary trans clients oh, and using their preferred pronouns and if yeah. something like mm-hmm. if someone corrects me um because they don't identify with gen mm-hmm. uh, they as being one of their pronouns mm-hmm. then it's something that i really note yeah. um and make sure mm-hmm. that like i suppose it flows onto the notion of like respecting people's pronouns yeah. no yeah. matter what they are all right nate special guest host <laughs> hugh comes to see you how are you can help her I think the really the, the first thing that's really really important is just kind of validating her experience, um, and I'm saying her even though I noticed in the in the in the little thing that she d- did say that she was she felt a bit anxious and panicked when her friends were calling her mm. she her, but I you know and I would double check that it was okay to to refer to her in that way, um, but just really validating that idea that you know she can explore she can find out who she who she wants play, to be or who right? she is yeah play play yeah. around so you know she said that um, maybe she should she should try with some they them pronouns and yeah. it sounds like like a really really positive for Q is the fact that they've got a really supportive network yeah. of friends who yeah. are already sort of using their their preferred pronoun and yeah. and name and sort of I, it, it, why not why not just yeah. try they them see how that feels so mm. that playfulness one of the things I'll often talk about with clients is you know well what kind of you know woman do you want to be like what kind of clothes are you going to wear like are you feeling mm. like super femme or are you feeling more like grungy like Avril Lavigne Evanescence yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. and I'll often like talk about you know and, and to the other thing you know we're talking about someone who maybe wants to like start masculinizing hormones but they also really want to like retain their their chest like and have, mm. have breasts because that's something that they feel really good about or you know like and yeah. kind of really demystifying that idea that you have to fit in a certain box oh, exactly. in terms of your gender so it's just that kind of idea of your gender is however your gender is yeah. and where where can we do how can we help you support explore that and yeah. and yeah. become it's, you it's the notion as well like it's not just a conveyor belt it's like once someone comes to kind of a doctor or a psychologist that like we then start them on a pathway with an end goal in sight. Like it's mm-hmm. not, I don't get to decide how someone wants to express themselves. Mm-hmm. All I'm there to do is kind of act to support them in that expression, um, no matter like which form it comes in. Wonder whether there's this idea of when do I start transitioning, which kind of implies this idea of when do I stop transitioning as well, like that at you know, this idea that there's this fixed start and end point mm. um, where it's the same thing. Like as a cisgendered person, I've never started and nor do I think that I'm going to stop that. It's just part of my ongoing life. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And that it's fluid the whole time, both identity sure. and expression. I think that's what you're kind of tapping in there, sure. particularly Tom and Nate, is this idea of, well, your expression is your expression. Yeah. yeah. You do you. Yeah, like sometimes like sometimes I'm super mask. Yeah. Like, I don't believe you. Well, we did <laughs> see him putting all the microphones together. Yeah. That was, was the most handy mask. one here. So one of the questions Q had was around starting hormones. What would that look like for a trans woman? So it's a little bit different depending on your age. And so for Q, uh, Q is under the age of 18. So there's mm. different kind of legalities around that. And so so currently in, in Australia, um, no matter what state you're in, um, if you are under the age of 18 and you want to start gender-affirming hormone therapy, um, you need the consent of both your parents. What does gender affirming mean horm- when you say gender oh, affirming yeah. hormones? So gender affirming hormones so is is hormones that are prescribed to g- g- result in secondary sexual characteristics, mm-hmm. also okay. what we commonly associate with puberty, okay. um, for people to feel more affirmed in their gender. So, for example, so breast development with estrogen or softer skin, mm. um, 
you fat know, redistribution, fat redistribution yeah. all yeah. of that sort of stuff. But it's not a fix-all, right? Like, is my voice going to change if I start on estrogen? No. So there's lots of things that hormones can and can't do. And mm. so... Um, you know, my my normal practice is to actually when when someone like you would come in, I would actually spend that that's a, like a, a 30, 40 minute conversation yeah. actually talking yeah. about the various expectations around what hormones yeah. can and cannot do. And I think it's really important to sort of understand that they're not going to be able to change things that have sometimes already happened. So Q's already 15. So they're probably out of the range of puberty blockers. So okay. in terms of thinking about um, like any Stopping, like hair, hair growth and, yeah. and, and, and kind of like deepening of the voice. Mm. We're probably past Adam's apple? That. Yeah, like to a certain extent, like mm-hmm. Like most um, like initial puberty will begin like kind of in that 10 to 11 mm. year old is like when we would start kind of seeing mm. signs of puberty beginning even mm. before mm. kind of like high school. Mm. Um, and then you've got kind of later kind of um, puberty where most of the changes have already kind of happened by mm. about 14, 15. And it normally and happens a little the, earlier for assigned females at birth. Generally, yeah. yeah. And But the thing is that um, kind of the, what happens after that 15 uh, is just mainly growth and in, okay. like, kind of further kind of significance of those changes that have happened mm. in early teenage years. I suppose, Nate, further to your point regarding um, that kind of legal uh, aspect of what we can do with hormone affirming therapy is that um, like your parents kind of need to be both on board. And unfortunately, it's kind of who's on the birth certificate. Um, and so that can be a real challenge uh, with certain members of society mm. um, to actually kind of access those um, kind of people, especially then kind of relying on someone's permission that we may not have seen uh, for several years. And it's certainly something that I suppose the medical community is part of the advocacy in terms of changing uh, this landscape such that we can support our patients better. So we're going to have to help you facilitate conversations with parents. Is Mm -hmm. that something that you do, Nate? Yeah, definitely. So it's a really, really common thing that I will do with my, particularly under 18s, but sometimes people over the age of 18 that Mm. like, you know, I've, I've done, I've helped facilitate with a 40 year old and their parents. Um, But it's about sort of talking to Q a little bit about how to make the space safe for them. And I also would sort of discuss with them what we actually wanted to talk about. So sometimes it's just that the, that, the person, um, the trans person sitting in front of me, just wants someone else to tell them to, to tell them that they're trans or that you know to that literally they say to the literally words. say the words. Sure. Um, and it can be th- like as simple as that, or they might want you know me to actually talk about the processes and what all you know sure. the, the million questions that they're going to have. Um, and I always make it really clear that with the so with Q sitting bef- in front of me, I would say, look. The, I, I'm not going to obviously tell your parents mm. any any of your secrets or stuff and sort of do all the mm. kind of what, what mm. confidentiality looks like. But I'll often actually say, is it okay if there's a moment where I have just your parents in the room or just mm. your parent in the room and mm. we get you to wait outside? Because I find that sometimes parents have questions that they don't necessarily want to ask mm. in front of their young person. And it, yeah. you need to have that safe space for parents to be able to ask those questions that they, you know, their fears, their worries, their mm-hmm. concerns, yeah. but also their grief like the you know the grief that parents can experience in terms of that they feel as that it might be this loss and and if that young person is actually listening to that that could be really really distressing so that's why I sort of make it very clear to sort of have separate with both and then sort of come together beautiful um how do parents normally take this 
are normally quite good, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I think most is of the time. Is it a surprise? Is that most, a common? Yeah, most parents, they, they I mean, the, the difficulty is, is I suppose, that the parents that are willing to come in and have a conversation with me, sure. they're already like, yeah. they're partway there. They're already, there. They're yeah. already there. So they're, they're, they're wanting to have a conversation. They're interested in their mm. child's well-being. Yeah. So whether it's that they have no idea why the doctor wants to have a chat with them yeah. or whether yeah. it's that, you know, they know explicitly yeah. that their that their child is, is gender diverse, yeah. um, they're already part of the way there. And I have a lot of parents who just uh, when they find out they or when they're explicitly told, they're like, well, there was all of these little markers and they start to really reflect on their child's narrative and really starting to go, actually, this helps make sense of experiences in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it can be really validating for that, that person to right. be like, oh, right, so even my parents yeah. noticed this about me when I was young. And, you know, I know personally my mum was like, oh, I just thought you were a tomboy. Like, and it was <laughs> like, yes, but, you know, and I feel as though I came out quite late because I was allowed to be a tomboy. Like yeah. I was allowed, like there was no requirement of yeah. me to wear a dress or anything yeah. like that that would cause me any sense of dysphoria yeah. in sort of how I was presenting. So there was no like expectations around your expression. Yeah. No, yeah. exactly. So mm-hmm. it's just, you know, so it's all my mum's fault that I yeah. didn't come out. <laughs> it's always the mum's <laughs> no, fault. Like mum was very supportive. Shout out to <laughs> <laughs> mum. So I suppose in terms of sort of thinking about grief, like I said with mm. parents, is that often I find particularly with trans populations is, is that when they're coming in to seek care, they're wanting to put on a good, fat, brave face and say that everything is good. So everything is fine and everything must be Mm. perfect and everything is happy and it's okay for them to also be experiencing grief and loss of, you know, and whether that's a grief around the fact that they weren't assigned the gender that they identified with at birth or whether that's a grief for the delay in their coming out or whether that's Mm. a grief for whatever that looks like, actually allowing people to be sad as well as, like, it's nothing is all good and all bad. Like, there are like everything is grey. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you all know that I'm very optimistic, but I genuinely believe that parents want what's best for their kids. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I, I wonder whether some of that grief, I just, you know, is parents being shit scared for their kids? Guy, I just want mm. it to be easy for you and it would be so much easier if you were a cishead kid, you know, like that you could because it would be easier. Well, it's, also, and, it's, it's uh, also their experience. Yeah. It's generational. So it's generally yeah. like in a lot of cases um, like where, like whether you're sexually, uh, sexuality diverse or yeah. gender diverse, yeah. you're going to be born into like a cishetero um, family. Society. And society yeah. because that's the majority and so like if that's someone's individual experience as a parent yeah. that's kind of what they know to be safe. It's because it's what yeah. they've done themselves. And so they're wanting to then kind of experience that um, with their yeah. children. Yeah. And so, like, I think as Nate was saying as well, the notion of like kind of that individual being grieving yeah. some of their parts of their lives mm-hmm. is yeah. really like a nice pickup because it's just that uh, being able to sit with someone in that and say that it's okay, like you're mm-hmm. experiencing something that, a lot of other people experience mm. is really important here. And and that excitement and optimism can sit there like along with that grief. Yeah. I think too, another point with the parents is that it's also a generational thing here. Yeah. Um, you know, I know even myself at 35 years old, when I was at high school, uh, there was no talk around gender diversity. There was no understanding mm. of it. There was certainly no one out as gender diverse. I was the only, I was the only gay kid at school, let alone anyone who, yeah. who was trans, that 
parents didn't go through, um, well, most parents, I would assume, didn't go through an adolescence where they experienced mm. it in the same way or, or mm. kind of on the same level of acceptance and, and exploration mm. that, that their kids would do now. I really want to say, though, one thing I see in parents, and I think this is one of the most beautiful things, uh, when I see a parent, you know, um, six months into a kid's social affirmation, you know, maybe taking steps towards a medical affirmation as well, and you actually see the parents go, I just, you know, of course I'm still scared, worried about my kid, but... I just see how happy they are and just this relief at this kid uh, who's often um, grief-stricken before coming out and so anxious and will often have, you know, mood dysregulation because they're carrying this massive secret and they're, you know, terrified about coming out and just this relief and this euphoria of just being able to be them. And it's really beautiful to see parents picking up on that Mm. Um, and, you know, like I've seen these really kind of... um, uh, parents who are quite closed off in some ways, like become quite emotional talking about just seeing the really positive changes in their mm. kids. And that's actually moves me quite a lot when I see that. Because there's often so much that's kind of comorbid with yeah. kind of gender distress and gender dysphoria, sure. be that depression, anxiety, like social complications, be that, you know, even eating disorders. Yeah. And a lot of that can really, well, I don't say a lot, but, you know, much of it can be helped if we're helping them to be able to connect with their true gender identity mm. and yeah. express their gender in the way that they feel is yeah. right. Like, but then all these other kind of mental health concerns that might be there um, yeah. can also kind of benefit from that. I think we see that in the statistics as well in the sense mm. that trans 15 to 25-year-olds are 15 times more likely to have attempted suicide in the previous 12 months compared to mm-hmm. the um, general community, mm-hmm. which is just a shocking mm-hmm. kind of stat in terms of mental health and like the effect of kind of society not validating these people's expression. Mm-hmm. And also like and with that, within that statistic, like the biggest risk point is between when they come out and receiving us affirmation so whether mm-hmm. that's medical affirmation or social affirmation but the biggest risk is in that moment when they first sort of start to come out all right gang final thoughts dave uh, my final thoughts here, uh, I guess, around the importance of language and the language is always developing in this area. Uh, but something that I really like and that's really kind of settling lovely, in a lovely way for me is kind of this movement away from maybe the word kind of transitioning and more towards affirming because transitioning tends to refer to kind of this movement from one to the other Uh Like I was here and now I'm there. Whereas affirming says, I've always been this. This is who I actually am. And I'm now kind of stepping into that space. So language for me. Cool. Tom. Yeah. Like I think it's one of these situations where like I'm always going to try and act as to affirm someone's kind of gender as they kind of identify and want to express themselves. And I think it's something to like kind of the PSA to like the healthcare professionals out there is that kind of. Um, to educate ourselves on the notions of how we can do that um, in an informed consent manner, ideally, um, or in a supported manner to be able to kind of help our patients so we're not increasing someone's distress um, as they kind of face this uh, roadblock system um, to be themselves, essentially, because they're who they say they are. I guess that my final thought is that this is a time, like this is a stressful thing that you're going through, Q, and I really want to acknowledge this is, it's tough. 
yeah, it's so tough. Yeah, but it could also be really fun and playful and a really cool chance for you to explore um, something that feels like a secret that uh, you've been keeping to yourself and has been causing you some distress. So, um, you know, as tough as it is, I really hope that you get some uh, really good friends and uh, familial support. But, you know, if you need some professional help as well, because I really want to celebrate, you know, your gender with you and just give you a space that, you know, we can you know, be happy and be excited as you start to affirm your gender through social and medical side as well. So just come and celebrate with us. And Nate, final thoughts? Uh, so my final thought is more sort of around that idea of fluidity and that, you know, you, you don't have to have all of the questions answered when you're sort of seeking care and seeking treatment. You can just, you can just be at wherever stage you are and that can change and that can move and your gendered identity can change and your sexuality can change and your, you know, hair can change. Like it, everything can change. Nothing is fixed. It's all yeah. grey. Mm. Just like my hair at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> So that's it for us this week from the Meek You podcast. Nate, thank you for joining us and being here. It's so wonderful to have Um, you. You're fabulous. (laughs) We'll catch you all next time. Bye. Meek You is brought to you by Q Psychology, Melbourne's leading private psychology practice for the LGBT QIAP plus community. Q is a fictional character. Any similarities to a specific person are coincidental and are due to Q representing common mental health difficulties experienced by members of the queer community. Any advice provided by the presenters is general in nature and should not replace specific and individualised mental health support that might be needed. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 13 11 14. Rainbow Door is available on 1800 729 367, 10am to 5pm, seven days a week. And Q Life is available on 1800 184 527, 3pm to midnight every day. Please visit the Meet Q website at www.meetqpodcast.com for further specific LGBTQIAP mental health resources. Thank you.